0: This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, an internal medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. When one talks about COVID-19 and the infections that's resulting from it, there's a lot of stress among providers among lay people and almost all over the world, people are worried about what is going on. Why is the confusion so rampant with COVID-19? When you look at any illness, there are usually some that cannot change. In COVID-19, it involves patients with age over 60, male gender, poor economic status, etc. That cannot be changed by us or by anybody else. However, the modifiable risk factors are access to hospitals with critical care, facilities like ventilators, uh, what medications can be given, and we have heard about a lot of new medications being considered, smoking, so on and so forth. There is increased emphasis on the risk which is posed by the patient's comorbid conditions and the medications that they are taking or not taking during this period. As we already know that there are a lot of medications which are being considered like chloroquine, azithromycin, and antiviral treatment like lopinavir, retinavir, and remdesivir. We are still waiting on the results. However, what has really taken over the world and has caused a lot of anxiety in the last week is a report which came out that ibuprofen could possess or could could present with great risk to patients who have COVID-19 infections. Today, we are joined over phone by Dr. Matthew Van Kijk, who's one of one of our go-to individuals in the Department of Pharmacy, and he also oversees the medication knowledge management program. Whenever we run into this problem in in, uh, med- in medicine, when we have a question regarding a medication side effect, I go to Matt Van Kijk, because he does possess the knowledge and resources to uh, give an information to me in a very speedy fashion as to what I need to do, because I'm being an internal medicine doctor, I'm at the front line. So thank you for joining us today, Matt.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I wanted to, ask you about could, if you could describe the recent events in the media that led to the suggestion that COVID patients should not be taking ibuprofen, uh, that they could be having a worse outcome.
1: Yeah. So uh, with a lot of things these days, uh, it started off uh, primarily with social media. So it started off with a tweet, actually. And and we to kind of get to that tweet, we need to go back a little bit further. So On March 11th, 2020, the Lancet Respiratory Medicine actually published a correspondence uh, that hypothesized why a single-centered, retrospective observational study observed poor outcomes in critically ill patients who had this novel coronavirus in China who also had cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and or diabetes. So in this correspondence, the authors hypothesized that the medications that these patients were commonly taking could be leading to worse outcomes. Uh, And we'll get a little bit into that hopefully later on in this talk about why that might be be hypothesized. But subsequently on March 14th, the French Health Ministry issued a COVID-19 recommendation update. In this updated guidance, the ministry recommended against the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, such as ibuprofen due to the serious adverse events related to the use of NSAIDs in patients with known or suspected cases of COVID-19. And I think one important thing to mention at this point is there have been uh, several case reports or case studies out in France uh, looking at ibuprofen in, in viral infections. And so even before this whole COVID-19 uh, pandemic, there has been questions in France about the use of ibuprofen in infectious diseases, so keep that in mind. Um, And and this recommendation that, that came out on March 14th was partially based on this March 11th correspondence in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine, as well as some anecdotal evidence of young individuals with the novel coronavirus having poorer clinical outcomes while they were taking ibuprofen. So shortly after this tweet or this notification from the French health ministry, uh, the World Health Organization actually came out and recommended against the use of ibuprofen. They actually said that if given the, the opportunity, you should be using acetaminophen over ibuprofen. Now they quickly turned around uh, less than 24 hours later and actually redacted that statement. And since since that time, other uh, other well-known institutions such as the United States Food and Drug Administration have come out also saying there's just not enough evidence to support saying that ibuprofen should not be used. However, um once that that you know horse had kind of left the barn, uh the damage had already been done and the media had informed the general public uh that health authorities across the globe were recommending against the use of ibuprofen.
0: Yeah, it's, it's great that you mention about the tweet. I was just uh, today morning looking at the number of website hits on when I typed in COVID-19 in Google, I got 5.4 billion hits uh today and for when i when i combined covid 19 with ibuprofen uh, i came up with 25 million hits just to give you an idea about how great this size is that whenever you um, add anything to covid like uh, what to do what not to do uh, and we have had some um, mini series in the past where we talk about anosmia and covid 19 all these new events which are coming are getting huge response in the media. For example, known things that we know with certainty, absolutely certainty, and and we have studied it in randomized trials and big meta-analysis, like use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication and it's causing kidney disease. It's 5.6 million hits. Uh, Using proton pump inhibitor long-term studies, Long-term use of proton pump inhibitor resulting in osteoporosis is 0.3 million hits. Compare that with COVID and ibuprofen of 25 million hits. So, you're absolutely right that this article, which I see, it's a one-page document. It's a it's a course, It has come in the correspondence section. It's not even in the main journal, and it's based on some hypothesis which has been placed. Uh, Mainly dealing with the pathophysiology of these medications, but one of the thing which Matt, I was intrigued by is it. They mentioned about few medications. They postulated that few medications increase the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 uh, en- enzyme. And can you tell me why this angiotensin converting enzyme 2 suddenly has come into limelight during the COVID crisis?
1: Yeah. So angiotensin. Converting Enzyme 2, or ACE2, as I'll probably refer to it uh, throughout the rest of this, uh, really came into the limelight because it's one of the main entry points for some of the coronaviruses, including the novel coronavirus, uh, which is the cause of the COVID-19 disease. So ACE2 can be found on the epithelium of the lungs, intestines, kidneys, and blood vessels. And as you've kind of alluded to here, um, some of the drugs can cause an upregulation uh, to these, these uh, epithelial ACE2 um, and, and cause potential issues because it's the main entry point for the, the novel coronavirus here.
0: And by some of the drugs you mean the ACE inhibitors, the, the ARB or angiotensin receptor um, inhibitors, as well as ibuprofen has also been one of the medicines which has been linked to upregulate angiotensin two and thiazidolums which are used in diabetes but these are pathophysiological uh, changes which have been which have been linked uh, to uh, these medications but we have found out that anytime in the past whenever you use pathophysiology and 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 conduct studies just based on pathophysiology we are not often right uh, for example in new England journal in march twenty first nineteen ninety one they had performed a study hypo with the hypothesis that if we suppress the ventricular ectopic after myocardial infarction, it could reduce sudden death. It made sense that after myocardial infarction, the heart is unstable, is throwing in all the ectopics, and if you give in some medications and slow that ectopic or stop that ectopic, maybe the prognosis is gonna be better. But the randomized trial, which was published in NEGM on March 21st, 1991, showed completely the opposite. When they used flecainide, and Enconide, in fact, the number of patients who are dying, were dying of arrhythmias were much more on patients who were taking these two antiarrhythmic medications. So similarly, um, the whole concept that if you avoid angiotensin receptor um, 2 inhibitors like ACE or ARBs, um, you might show a benefit uh, in patients with COVID. But there are other studies. Uh, can you talk about the study which, which about naproxen, which is also an NSAID, and that had some inf- influence on influenza? Um,
1: yeah, exactly. So, um, so, kind of, you've done a great job of summarizing why it's maybe not the best. Um, some of these smaller studies maybe find one thing, but we can get conflicting data. And I, I think naproxen and actually indomethacin are great examples of this. So, Um, In in a study with naproxen, they found that it actually uh, inhibits the nucleoprotein of influenza A, which is a protein that's necessary for viral replication. And so that's an NSAID that has antiviral uh, activity there. And so this kind of confounds this whole, um, are NSAIDs, you know, pro viral or antiviral, that type of thing. But also um, in, in my studies and looking some of, some of the information up for you, I found that indomethacin has actually shown antiviral activity against other coronaviruses in vivo. Um, so based on these observations, a lot of clinicians have questioned the hypothesis that ibuprofen is harmful um, because there's other medications in the same class like we, like we just talked about, indomethacin as well as naproxen, that actually have shown antiviral activity.
0: Now, the other thing which I would ask as a general physician, I take care of hundreds of patients with diabetes, hypertension, congestive heart failure, and uh, chronic kidney disease. And for these patients and for millions others that my colleagues who are listening to our podcast treat, ACE has been shown beyond a doubt with meta analysis, systematic analysis, systematic reviews, one after the other, showing great. Uh, benefit. In fact, the outcomes of hard outcomes like mortality, uh, limiting heart failure, uh, decreasing uh, admissions to the hospital. All of these benefits are shown with ACE inhibitors. So, with stopping suddenly, there's some suggestion of stopping even ACE inhibitors in patients uh, with diabetes and hypertension on congestive heart failure. Unfortunately, these patients also get a lot more of them are suffering from COVID because of other reasons. But the mention was that to stop these medications because, yes, uh, the the COVID virus is using angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 as a receptor to get in, and these these receptors are upregulated when somebody is taking an ACE inhibitor or an ARB or or ibuprofen or thiazidolone. So to stop these medications and maybe there will be benefit of which we have zero evidence but the harm, I wanted to, you to specify the harm that could happen if, if we just blindly take some guidelines and adopt it to these chronic patients.
1: Yeah, so I think you've done a great job of pointing out the numerous benefits. So uh, numerous studies have shown that ACE inhibitors reduce mortality and cardiovascular endpoints, in stable coronary artery disease, they also have beneficial effects in uh, congestive heart failure, type 2 diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. And so this has actually been a uh, topic that's come up in, uh, in some of the, the more well-known societies, and so uh, uh, everyone kind of saw this coming, that, that were, there would be physicians out there that might wanna stop these just because of this hypothesized upregulation of ACE2. So on March 17th, 2020, the American College of Cardiology and the American Hypertension Association as well as the European Society of Cardiologists strongly recommended that patients with chronic disease who are already taking an ACE inhibitor or ARBs should continue to take these medications. And so this recommendation is in part because of the benefits of the reduced mortality that that both you and I mentioned earlier, but it's also because there's been some studies that have actually suggested that ACEs and ARBs might be beneficial in treating or preventing pneumonia.
0: Thank you, Matt. That's, That's very useful that now we have... Uh, a statement from the national uh, and international um, guidelines give big committees like the american college of physicians the american heart and the european society of cardiologists stating that uh, do not do not stop these medications in fact they have gone i was reading it after i discussed with you last week uh, i was reading some of the guidelines and they mentioned that ace inhibitors have been u- have been shown to cause beneficial effects in patients with severe lung injuries um, in in several cases so because of the anti inflammatory effects of the ACE um, they have been found to be of benefit apart from their benefit to the kidneys and the heart and everything else so these are these are good things to know um, that we should not stop i cannot predict how many patients have these medications have been stopped and and that is that is something to be to be concerned about. The other thing which comes about, which I don't have the answer, I don't know whether you have, is suppose somebody, somebody with COVID comes or somebody with this chronic, um, who have all these chronic heart disease or anything, comes to the ED and gets one dose of ibuprofen, how much of upregulations of angiotensin-converting enzymes happens anyway with one, medica- one tablet? And, or if they're admitted in the hospital, if we are chronically giving them ibuprofen, how much upregulation of these enzymes happen, and could they be of clinical significance? Because ibuprofen, there are alternative medications like acetaminophen. Um, one is not really limited in one's armamentarium to just stick to ibuprofen. So one can always say, well, if you are having some pain, give give acetaminophen, which has which does not affect the Angiotensin converting enzymes too, but apart from that, um, are you aware of any studies which show that you have to take ibuprofen for a week or two weeks or three weeks before it causes upregulation?
1: Yes. So when I looked into this problem particularly, uh, it was really only animal studies that I was able to find it in, and unfortunately, uh, you know, just because of the way the study was designed, they uh, they were not able to actually. Check these after one dose. It was generally after several doses, and so uh, it's really hard for us to extrapolate out and say, you know, after one dose you're going to see this immediate upregulation of ACE2, and you should worry about it. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, there's just not good data. Like with a lot of things coming out with COVID-19, uh, there's still a lot of a lot of questions that we have to answer.
0: That's great. That leads me to a much more complex question. This is not going to be the only time. I'm sure you've. You have been tapped by um, the doctors here in Mayo Clinic and by public, I mean the patients. During these moments, during similar moments of uncertain or challenging times, and this is kind of almost unprecedented what we are going through, uh, you are the first line of defense sometimes when the providers, when the physicians don't know, I lift up the phone and call call you or a pharmacist saying, hey, help me out, what does this study mean? What does this medicine mean? How do you respond, or how do you communicate with one voice to doctors and patients, saying um, when when we are when there is so much noise in the press about our medications? What approach do you follow?
1: Yeah, so I, I think with with all healthcare workers at this time, it's particularly important for all of us to, to stay abreast of kind of the, the developments with the COVID nineteen. Um, but it's particularly important with pharmacists because we've been hearing about a lot of different uh, developing sciences that may change our response to the novel coronavirus. Uh, even in press conferences uh, that you hear probably daily from the president, you've heard about a lot of different potential medications that that are in the pipeline. Um, so for pharmacists specifically, there's actually uh, a lot of work that has been done. Uh, there's, there's a great society that we have called the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, or ASHP, They've done a great job of putting out a variety of pharmacy-related resources. So these include a summary of medications that are being discussed in the scientific community as well as the lay press. It's a nice table format. So I would encourage even uh, healthcare care providers so primary care physicians to, you know, periodically check that because they are updating so, it on a regular basis. Um, but in addition to that, that that table that I just mentioned, they have a comprehensive database of drugs that are currently on shortage. And so this might be useful outside of the pandemic. Um, and in, in some of those instances, they actually do provide appropriate alternatives that are available. So I found that this has been particularly useful when we do have a drug shortage, if they can point me in the right direction, maybe it's a disease state that I don't know uh, everything about, or maybe it is something that I do know a lot about, but I'm just not sure what is available. So that's another resource that I would definitely recommend that ASHB ASHP puts out here at Mayo Clinic specifically, though, we have developed an internal website dedicated to COVID 19 for the Department of Pharmacy. And before COVID even became a thing, we had a weekly newsletter, but we've been using that more and more often to highlight important information as it relates to the pandemic. I would uh, urge everyone, uh, pharmacists particularly, to check reliable sources such as the CDC. Uh, COVID-19 website, ASHP website that I spoke about earlier, the website is ASHP.org, and there will be links in the specific resources uh, for this podcast. Because what we're saying on this podcast today or, uh, you know, kind of what's going on in a week from now might be completely different than, than what we're thinking right now. So it's really important, especially in this rapidly evolving situation, for everyone to keep as knowledgeable about the situation as they can by checking these reliable resources. There's one in particular that I think is really valuable for everyone, all the healthcare professionals out there, and it's called the Assessment of Evidence for COVID-19 Related Treatments. And so, again, that's a a PDF that is in table format that I think does a really great job of uh, giving you the rationale for why, why we're even looking at something. It also tells you about the clinical experience the doses that are being studied, as well as some comments about you know some interpretations of maybe the studies that have been put out, how maybe some of their flaws
0: thank you matt That's very very helpful and so I would check on a s h s p dot org website um, and actually look at look at exactly um, the information that you're saying. but I would like to add one more thing which adds to the confusion and sometimes lack of understanding. A lot of us really struggle with how to communicate risk and why, different, why the risks which, are, which, we, which, is, which we are exposed to at the particular moment varies between the city which we live, uh, the county which we live, and the hospital that is close to us, or even the country which we live. Because risk is a risk communication, and I do a lot out here in Mayo Clinic. And I've learned that when I have to communicate risk, it has two different information. One is the objective information, which people want to know, that what is the risk of the undesired outcome and how often does it happen? For example, I looked at the numbers today. We have over 144,000 positive cases and 2,600 deaths in U.S which would mean that one in 55 individuals who test positive uh, might have a fatal event. So that's really bad. It's the one point individual over 60 years old, obese individuals, they are at higher risk. So they want to know how bad that can be. And that's why there is so much fear. So talking about some of these emotions which which are associated with risk communication, we need to understand why some risks are acceptable. It's some risks are voluntary risk When an individual tends to smoke or decides to smoke or have an unhealthy lifestyle, they are taking the risk on themselves, and they don't think that it's as risky as opposed to an involuntary risk, which the environment is putting on us, like the virus has done that. So, again, we are worried about man-made risk versus natural worse risk. worse off than a man-made risk, which I would incur on myself should I happen to smoke. Again, a risk which is unfamiliar, like the current situation, as opposed to a familiar risk. A familiar risk would be like driving and getting into a situation where the more I drive, the chance of my ending up in an accident is high. Right now, the risk of dying in a car accident is 1 in 10,000, and we, we, are, very, we are okay with it because it's, it's a small risk, and, and it is a familiar risk. But this unfamiliar thing which is happening, every county in the US have a different particular, the, uh, particular risk of developing and once we develop, what's the chance of uh, it hurting us uh, from just being in the hospital to really ending up in a ventilator and the worst case scenario death? That's very scary. Any risk which is posed to children and pregnant women are considered more risky than anything else. Catastrophic risk is again, Felt to be very, very uh, problematic, both in communication as well as explaining risk, which are which are thought to be unfair. Um, and I was just watching the videos over all over the world, and I saw some really sorry state of affairs in India, where there was a huge migrant population who just were fleeing a particular. Uh, city to, to go to their own own houses because of this risk possessed by COVID. And that was felt to be very unfair because they were poor and they didn't have the resources. So there is a lot of uh, elements which goes into understanding risk. The other bigger elements becomes as contradictory statement which happened in this case. Uh, the WHO saying yes um, ibuprofen is risky and then taking back Within, within a day saying no it is not that again possess pose to uh, kind of makes people confused as to really what is going on and who is doing what so these kind of things one has to be as a physician I'm aware of and I use this um, element and I use all the strategy to kind of explain understand to myself first because I need to understand the competence of risk before I am in a position to explain a risk. So I keep it very simple. I sit down with a patient, I say, listen, you have this risk, is it, we are talking about, is it pain, is it disability, is it death? For corona, it could be either one of the three. So if it is asymptomatic, which is 81% of the patient, you know, you're, you're better off not taking ibuprofen, better off taking Tylenol, and uh, if it is, if you get in the hospital, again, you're not, you, regardless of what the evidence and what hypothesis we are talking about taking acetaminophen uh, is probably beneficial and if it's death all this all hands on deck that's when we are trying to prevent it that's a whole different situation then is it temporary or permanent this seems to be temporary event for most 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 of the cases that's what we are talking about the flattening of the curve most of this issues will resolve within 2 to 3 weeks but for some cases Of course, death is a permanent event. Is it early? Then the third thing which I talk about is the timing. Is it going to happen early or is it going to happen late? The effects of corona is, and that's why it's scary, because it is an early event. Things happen very suddenly, as opposed to hypertension, diabetes, heart failure, all these things, or even smoking. That's why people are okay with taking the risk of smoking, because it will happen 10 years from now, 20 years from now, so they worry about it. And then the probability, what is the likelihood of this event happening? Which that's why knowing the numbers of where you are, which city you are, and in Mayo Clinic, we are working day and night, you include Matt and nursing staff and front end, to absolutely reduce the probability of an adverse effect. We know we're going to fail at times, we're going to fail the patient, we're going to fail the, the family we're probably going to lose out in some cases, but can we save a lot more patients understanding um, our resources and what we need to do? And that's why, Matt, you come become so useful. Pharmacy becomes so helpful in guiding us as to what medications need to be used, not used, what are the best format, and thank you for to you and your team to get that message out with your websites and um, and also letting us know about the the websites that you mentioned here. The fifth dimension of risk is badness. What is the badness, or what is the value to this patient? So, most chronic diseases are slowly, slowly they get worse. So, it's we don't we don't really see what's going on uh, till the patient comes back about a year or two. The patient has no idea what's going on, but the doctor or somebody seeing them within a year or two finds out that. The numbers are changing. The hemoglobin A1C is getting worse or heart failure is going to get worse even though the patient is living through it every day. Corona, it's not like that. It's now. It's within the next two to three weeks. So that is why we're getting so many websites and hits in Google. Um, Everybody is trying to find a cure, uh, but with the cure, there's a lot of uh, information. I won't call it misinformation. Everybody is trying to help the patient. Um, But what we are trying to established here to our Mayo mini series is trying to find out each of these elements which are being discussed in great uh, detail everywhere all over the world and try to figure out how Mayo Clinic's experts are approaching it. So we are talking about ibuprofen use and COVID-19 with Matt Van Kijk. Thank you for your time, Matt. Please remember right now, if you're a diabetic, if your patients have diabetes, if your patient has hypertension, if your patient has chronic kidney disease, or if your patient has chronic uh, is congestive heart failure, please, please, please do not do not stop the ACE inhibitors or the ARBs on these patients. When it comes to ibuprofen, it can worsen kidney disease, it can worsen heart failure. No big deal. You will, I know, you will not give it give to these group of patients. And there are many alternative medications which you can which you can use, but I think understanding how to communicate risk, how to understand risk is an important aspect which we internists have to face on a daily basis. And hopefully our discussion has been helpful to you um, to understand what's going on with risk communication with the patients. We will continue to bring you updates on the situation as events unfold. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please, please subscribe, stay healthy, See you next week and above all, keep physical and social distancing.